This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going, with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Aftershocks by Marco Kluse. I'm a big fan of science fiction in general, and I really love Kluse's writing. This particular book is giving me a whole interwar Europe but in space vibe that I'm really digging. So, if you're interested in that kind of thing, go to audibletrial.com japan and check it out yourself. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 296, As I Crossed a Bridge of Dreams, part 1. One of the things that tends to come up a lot when you look at pre-modern history pretty much anywhere in East Asia is the issue of sexism. Simply put, a lot of the canonical works of history and literature tend to be pretty misogynistic in their treatment of women. One of the great historical epics of the Chinese tradition, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, contains one of the best examples, the famous story of Dong Zhuo, his adoptive son, the brilliant warrior Lu Bu, and the wily and beautiful Diao Chan, who uses her powers of seduction to turn both men against each other and destroy them. Diao Chan is far from the only example, though. The archetype of the woman as seductress goes back to the earliest recorded histories of East Asia. In the first great Chinese history, the records of the grand historian Sima Qian from about 2100 years ago, many a great king and many a great dynasty is brought down by conniving and evil women, like the cruel queen Da Ji who tortured sages for fun and poured poison in her husband's ear. This tendency to treat women as the source of betrayal in turn spread to the regions of East Asia with strong cultural ties, to China, like Korea and Japan. More than a few histories of the Sengoku period in Japan rely on the evil wife manipulating her husband trope, and of course, during the Tokugawa period, intense legal and cultural restrictions on women became the norm. And yet it is important for us to realize that East Asia, like everywhere else, has a long history, and the region has changed a lot over the course of that history. For example, a lot of the blame for the misogyny of elite culture in East Asia, though certainly not all of it, belongs to a Chinese scholar named Zhu Xi, who lived during the middle of China's Song Dynasty. His exact dates are 1130-1200 CE, if you're curious. Zhu Xi is the main progenitor of an intellectual trend we usually call Neo-Confucianism, in terms of building a systemic philosophy of Confucian thought that could be consistently applied to all aspects of governance and life, he's probably the most important figure in Confucian history. But wait, I hear you asking, isn't Confucius the most important figure in the intellectual history of Confucianism? Well, yes, to an extent, but his philosophy was not systemic. 
The writings of Confucius, such as they are, and there's a lot of controversy over what exactly was actually written by Confucius, and plenty of things that are traditionally attributed to him, he definitely did not write, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, the actual writings we have are basically disconnected aphorisms. The records of his teachings are preserved in the Lunyu, or Analects, a 20-chapter work that jumps around a lot. The whole thing is just fragments of short lines or conversations that one of Confucius' students jotted down on the back of a napkin or something after thinking, oh, hey, that sounds smart. There were other people in the early Confucian tradition whose writings were a bit more focused, a bit more systemic. Mencius and Chunza, for example, who came a couple of centuries after Confucius himself, but the tricky thing was that these philosophers tended to disagree with each other on some pretty important stuff. For example, Mencius and Shunza radically differed on their interpretation of the basic question of whether or not people are inherently good. Mencius said yes, Shunza said no, which made their approaches to some pretty important questions like what is the point of government pretty different too. All of this is a very roundabout way of saying that before Jushi, it was very hard to say definitively what Confucianism even was. Beyond some sort of broad-stroke basics, respect for parents good, greed bad, and so on, you could get some pretty different answers to questions about what a Confucian actually believed, depending on who you asked. Zhu Xi was the one who took the time to build a consistent interpretation of Confucian philosophy, to select a canon of classical works and commentaries that supported that interpretation, and, probably most importantly, to convince the emperors of China's Song Dynasty to endorse his interpretation as official state orthodoxy. So this system of philosophy is unique enough that we give it this label of Neo-Confucianism to distinguish it from the 1500 years of Confucianism that came before. One of the areas where Zhu Xi was forced to impose his own interpretation was on the subject of women. Confucius himself says very little on the subject in the Analects, neither do Mencius and Shunza. The most any of the ancient Confucian sages have to offer on this subject is some general observations about the importance of the continuity of the male line in a family, meaning essentially that women need to have sons to keep their family line going. But these philosophers also enjoy respect for parents, which would include the mother, obviously, so it's not quite clear exactly what they believed the relative position of women was in society. Later official discourse did promote the idea of female subordination. 2,000 years ago, the Han Dynasty writer Ban Chao, herself a woman, wrote about how important it was for women to master the seven virtues— Humility, resignation, subservience, self-abasement, obedience, cleanliness, and industriousness. However, it was really Neo-Confucianism that codified the idea of women being subordinate to men in pretty much every sphere of life. One of Jushi's teachers is famously known to have said that it was better for a woman to starve to death than to abandon their chastity for any reason. While remarriage for widows was discouraged in earlier dynasties, under Jushi's influence, it became state orthodoxy to publicly condemn remarriage for widows. I don't want to pretend that Jushi somehow invented sexism in East Asia. That idea has a much older history, 
but the fact that his philosophy did spread around the region and became state orthodoxy in China and Korea, and an influential school of thought in Japan, though it was never as widely accepted there, certainly did not improve the lives of women. But when it comes to Japan, and yes, we are finally talking about Japan now, Jushi's Neo-Confucian influence was a relatively recent arrival. Jushi himself died in 1200, but it wasn't really until the 1500s that Neo-Confucianism as a philosophy started to gain any traction in Japan. It took until the early Tokugawa period for adherents of Neo-Confucianism to gain any sort of high-ranking position in the Japanese government. Which means that the majority of Japan's recorded history predates the arrival of Neo-Confucianism, and in particular that one of the most important cultural moments in Japanese history took place half a century before the first Jushi adherent ever set foot on Japan. I'm referring, of course, to the Heian period, the classical era of courtly Japan. In terms of overall cultural history, you could make the argument that the Heian era was not actually that influential, because its elite culture was a. elite and reserved for a small group of people, and b. confined to a single city, Heian, now Kyoto, the imperial capital. A lot of the more recognizable aspects of Japanese culture today have roots in more recent times, in what we would call Japan's medieval period, roughly 1300 to 1500 or so. But in retrospect, the Heian era has taken on a huge importance for Japanese cultural history. As we've talked about a few times before on the show, the Heian era is considered to be Japan's classical era, like the classical eras of the West, the age of Greece and Rome, it's often treated as the moment when a culture distinct from those around it first emerged. Which, of course, doesn't mean there was no Japanese culture before the Heian era, simply that the Heian period has become this powerful cultural marker in retrospect. And that's interesting for us today, because the records we have of women in Heian Japan, our actual subject for today, by the by, show something very different from the austere and frankly misogynistic Neo-Confucianism of half a century later. So what I want to do today is talk a bit about what we know about the lives of women in Heian Japan, and then start to talk some about the more prominent women of the period. First though, two disclaimers. To start, all of this applies to elite women from the Kuge aristocracy, the groupings of powerful families surrounding the imperial court. We don't really have much of anything at all beyond a few scattered mentions and some archaeological records regarding the lives of regular women, for the same reasons we generally know more about the wealthy than anybody else throughout history. Simply put, being rich and being educated means you are far more likely to have left some trace behind, whether it's a short poem you wrote or mention of your deeds in a stuffy official history or something else. Second, we're going to be dealing specifically with a lot of female writers and poets during this period because the best evidence we have of women's lives from this time comes from the written word. We've talked, of course, about some of these great writers, most famously Sei Shonagon and Murasaki Shikibu. In general, writing was one of the best ways for women during this period to make their mark for reasons that we're going to get into so most of the women whose lives we know very much at all about were writers. 
With those caveats in mind, let's talk first about the roles of women within the Kuge aristocracy in the Heian period. Now, the Heian era was not a period of perfect gender equality. That's not what I want you to take away from this at all. In point of fact, from what we can tell, during the Heian period, Japanese women had lost a lot of the power they'd once enjoyed. From the available pre-Heian sources we have, and there aren't that many as writing doesn't arrive in Japan until the 500s or so, female shamans wielded a lot of influence in the earliest days of Japanese civilization. Indeed, women even wielded substantial political authority. It's worth noting that the first time a Japanese kingdom appears in a written Chinese history in the 290s CE, that kingdom is ruled by a woman, the shaman queen Himiko of Yamatai. And in the 600s, there was a string of six empress regnants, in other words, empresses who actually ruled in their own right, they sat on the throne themselves, whose reigns are well documented historically. They are, if you are curious, empresses Suiko, Kogyoku slash Saime, she abdicated and retook the throne and thus gets two regnal names, Jito, Genmei, Gensho, and Koken slash Shotoku, again, two reigns, two names. I'm not going to get too deep into them here because I think I want to do biographies of a few of these folks at some point, but the fact that you have women sitting on the throne really says something about the power women could wield in this system. Japan's mytho-histories contain even more female rulers whose reigns are poorly attested to or possibly outright fabricated, such as Empress Jingu, who is supposed to have reigned in the 200s CE and helped lead an invasion of the Korean Peninsula. So clearly, the idea of women wielding political power was not unusual at this point. However, starting in the 600s, Japan started to remodel its society and system of governance using the structures of China's mighty Tang dynasty. The Tang were not a strongly Confucian dynasty, and were if anything more Buddhist than anything else. However, the Tang model of society and governance was pretty patriarchal, and therefore women lost a lot of the access they once enjoyed to positions of political power. However, this is also not to say that women were rendered powerless during the Heian period. Aristocratic women still enjoyed pretty substantial rights under the Heian government, including the right to inherit property in their own names, to maintain independent households, or to live with their parents after marriage, as well as the right to divorce. Indeed, the Heian law codes themselves represent this in a really interesting way. They describe marriage using Chinese characters that refer to a woman joining a man's household, and describe marriage in those exact terms, but from what we can actually tell, the vast majority of elite marriages were either what we call visiting marriages, where the man and woman maintain independent households and, well, visit each other, or marriages where the man moved in with the woman's family. Most scandalously, despite official prohibitions on extramarital affairs, and even laws copy-pasted straight from the Tang legal codes, stating that if a man and woman have sex and then get married, they must get divorced, women engaging in extramarital sex seems to have been broadly accepted as the norm. Heian-era literature describes fairly open affairs between men and women, and from what we can tell, the only time these things were considered objects of public scorn were if they were carried on too openly. In other words, it was okay for women to sleep around, you just couldn't brag about it. Elite women often enjoyed some access to education as well. 
As we noted in the episodes on Sei Shonagon and Murasaki Shikibu, it was possible for women to learn classical Chinese, the language of elite male politics and culture. They usually were not trained in it because the language was associated with the realm of politics from which they were officially banned, but it was not illegal to learn the language, merely titillating and a little scandalous in a fun way. Women also had access to a whole different language, the phonetic alphabet known as kana. In modern Japanese, these are the characters associated with individual sounds, closer to how letters work in English. Today, they are paired with kanji, characters from Chinese that represent both a sound and a concept, and you use both in everyday writing. Kana are generally simpler to write, they're usually the first things you'll learn in Japanese 101. However, the flowing cursive kana script known as hiragana got its start mostly as a tool for women to write with. Indeed, one of the terms by which it was originally known was onnade, or woman's script. It wouldn't stay a woman's script, of course. Before long, Japanese men, seeing how convenient this was, would start making use of it for their own private correspondence, and from there it would enter common use in written Japanese, but the origins of this script were in aristocratic female culture. Even if they couldn't write in classical Japanese, therefore, and some could, it just wasn't common, most aristocratic women could write in hiragana, allowing for a distinctly feminine literary culture to blossom. That literary culture is the biggest cultural remnant we have of the life of women in Heian, Japan, because at least some of it was intriguing enough to men that the foremost exponents of that culture would be included in these official records of the great masters of literature and poetry of the period. So with all that said, what do we actually, you know, know about some of the women of this period? Well, I want to explore this by focusing on some specific biographies from the time. Specifically, I want to zero in on three women, Izumi Shikibu, Akazome Emon, and Lady Sarashina slash Takasue's daughter, who I think collectively present an interesting contrast. Izumi Shikibu will be the focus for the rest of this episode, and in the interest of copying to my own biases, I should admit she is far and away my favorite of the bunch, for reasons that I think will become extremely clear very quickly. Next week we're going to talk Akazome Emon and Lady Sarashina. So, let's start with Izumi Shikibu. As with so many women from this period, her birth year is unclear. 976 is the most common guess, but that's just a rough estimate. We do know that her father was a middle-rank scholar, poet, and government official named Oe no Masamune, who was governor of Echizen Province, what's now Fukui Prefecture, on the Japan Sea coast. The Oe clan were a distinctly middle-of-the-pack family, distantly descended from the imperial clan, but now firmly consigned to the middle grades of the aristocracy. Indeed, Echizen itself, due to its location on the northern Japan Sea coast, was not a particularly prestigious position. The fact that he got posted there, off in the boondocks, tells you a lot about the family's relatively middling prestige. On her mother's side, meanwhile, Izumi Shikibu was descended from the Taira clan, a family of growing prestige. Her parents probably met because they both served in the court of the future Empress Shoshi, who would later be married to Emperor Reizei. Her mother was Shoshi's wet nurse. Her father had been senior secretary of Shoshi's household. 
we know very little of Izumi Shikibo's own life until she reached the age of 20. She appears to have followed in her parents' footsteps by joining the household of Empress Shoshi, and there met her future husband, Tachibana no Michisada. Their marriage is the source of part of Izumi Shikibu's name. Remember that the public-facing name for women during this period was not their personal name, but rather a combination of titles inherited from the men in their lives. It was not really common to refer to a woman by her personal name in writing, and, of course, writing is the main form of historical evidence that we have left from this period. In this case, Izumi comes from her first husband's position as governor of Izumi province. Shikibu came from the Shikibu Sho, or Ministry of Ceremonies, where her father had been employed. Izumi Shikibu and Taira no Michisada married in 995. By all accounts, the marriage was not particularly happy. The two liked each other personally, but appeared not to have a particularly fulfilling marriage, and the whole thing appears to have fallen apart by around 1001 or so, when Izumi Shikibu abandoned her husband in the middle of a five-year posting to the provinces and returned to Heian. By the time Michisada took his next posting in the provinces in 1004, the couple appear to have separated. They would continue to correspond in a friendly way, but their marriage was over. To be fair, this was not just a romantic failing. Izumi Shikibu likely contributed to the collapse of this marriage because of her affair with an honest-to-God imperial prince. Specifically, she had an affair with Prince Tametaka, the third son of the reigning Emperor Reize, which, for those of you keeping track, means she was stooping the son of the woman her parents had met working for and the woman she'd met her own husband working for, because the Heian aristocracy can get kind of weirdly, I guess not incestuous, but weird like this. Anyway, the whole affair was deeply scandalous. Izumi Shikibu was at best of middling rank, and thus not a socially appropriate person for an imperial prince to get freaky with. In other words, the scandal was not really the affair, but the social imbalance between the participants. Now, we should talk a little bit about what these affairs actually looked like in practice. This sort of relationship was confined, essentially, to the nighttime. One partner, usually the man, was expected to come calling covertly in the night to the woman's home and to get out of Dodge before the sun rose. In this case, therefore, Prince Tametaka would come calling on Izumi Shikibu, which is already a bit odd in terms of social standing because how could a prince come calling on some, at best, B-tier aristocrat. The whole thing was even more scandalous because Prince Tametaka actually violated a government curfew that was imposed during an instance of plague in the imperial capital to visit Izumi Shikibu, and even more scandalous because he then took ill, with some chronicles even directly blaming his midnight trysts with Izumi Shikibu for the illness which would eventually kill him. The whole thing, again, gave Izumi Shikibu a very scandalous reputation, not because she was having an affair necessarily, but because she had one with someone so above her own status, and because that imperial prince had risked and potentially lost his life to go see her. The whole thing gave her this sort of femme fatale aura, the lady so sexy that an imperial prince would literally die just to get with her. 
And of course, scandal heaped upon scandal because she then started a brand new affair with none other than her dead lover's brother, yet another imperial prince, Prince Atsumichi. This affair we know far more about, chiefly because Izumi Shikibu wrote a diary describing it. We know, for example, that Atsumichi hired one of his dead brother's pages and used this boy who already knew Izumi Shikibu to make contact with her. The two then enter that most romantic phase of courtship, the exchange of poetry. Poetry was, of course, a marker of distinction, education, and sophistication on the part of its composers. The idea that any educated or sophisticated person should be able to appreciate and create poetry had its roots in Tang Dynasty China. The aristocracy of the Heian period had really embraced this notion that anyone educated and worthwhile would be able to write poetry. Poetry was also an important part of romance. The fact that, in particular, couples who engaged in affairs could not cavort together in open daylight and had to keep their dalliances hidden meant that they were often, in effect, reduced to passing notes. Those notes were often poems in some form because taking the effort to produce a poem for someone you cared about was a marker that, well, you cared. Early on, the poems that Izumi Shikibu and Prince Atsumichi exchanged were more about the shared loss of Prince Tametaka, but before long, Atsumichi will make his move, writing a poem, quote, I would solace you with consoling words, if spoken in vain, no longer could be exchanged. Izumi Shikibu will accept his offer, yet again, rather astonishingly, it's not she who goes to visit him, but he who comes to her, and remember, this guy is an imperial prince. In most circumstances, he does not go out and visit other people. Other people visit him. And this is the moment when the romance really gets started, when the affair begins, as the two move from lamenting the past to engaging in a relationship. The affair is pretty tumultuous. At one point, Prince Atsumichi starts hearing rumors that Izumi Shikibu is having other affairs, and sees what he believes to be another man's palanquin, a litter carried on poles by bearers, outside of her home. He becomes convinced that she is having other men over and breaks things off temporarily. Shikibu, humiliated, is convinced the affair is over until he eventually sends another poem saying he can't forget her. Eventually, the whole thing will reach genuinely scandalous proportions. Izumi Shikibu will actually move in with Prince Atsumichi, a huge violation of the whole, as long as it's not too obvious, rules around extramarital affairs, because it's pretty damn obvious when you're openly living with your lover. As a result of her moving in, the prince's politically connected primary wife, a member of the powerful Fujiwara clan whose aunt was married to the imperial crown prince, would move out of Atsumichi's household, a hugely scandalous event. The fallout from this scandal would eventually result in Izumi Shikibu leaving Atsumichi's household, but their relationship remained pretty intense until Prince Atsumichi's own untimely death from illness at the age of 26, just a few months later. These two affairs, with two brothers, one of which was carried out so openly, both of which were with imperial princes, both of which ended with the male partner dying, gave Izumi Shikibu a kind of weird reputation as both scandalous even by the standards of a pretty sexually liberal time, and again, as a sort of femme fatale. 
Her rough contemporary, the fairly stodgy stick-in-the-mud Murasaki Shikibu, maybe that's just me being judgy, but hey, it's my podcast, would write in her own diary that Izumi Shikibu was, quote, unsavory. It's very likely that this affair was what she was referring to. Still, that unsavory character did not long impede Izumi Shikibu. Within a year, she was remarried, this time to a member of the Fujiwara clan, Fujiwara no Yasumasa. We've actually talked about Yasumasa before. He's one of the folks who appears in the stories of the bandit chief Hakamadare. Yasumasa is the badass, not-quite-a-warrior who freezes Hakamadare in place with a simple look when the bandit tries to rob him. By all accounts, the marriage between Yasumasa and Izumi Shikibu was fine. The two got along, but Izumi Shikibu continued to have affairs, surprise, surprise, it's rather characteristic of her that the one poem in which she mentions her husband is addressed to another man. Izumi Shikibu was also connected enough to find a place in the court of Empress Shoshi. If you'll recall, this is the politically weird moment in which Japan had two empresses serving as primary wives to the same emperor for reasons of weird family politics, because the two empresses both came from powerful wings of the same family in both of those wings, wanted influence over the emperor, it was a whole thing. What's important for us is that these two empresses were in competition with each other, so they started gathering influential ladies-in-waiting to their own courts, hoping essentially to compete over who had the most prestigious followers, and therefore who was the more culturally influential empress. In Shoshi's case, her most prestigious follower was the author of the tale of Genji, Murasaki Shikibu, but Izumi Shikibu was also becoming a widely read poet, in addition to the target of scandalous gossip, and so earned a spot at court herself. She would remain there until Shoshi was no longer empress. In 1011, her emperor died, and Shoshi joined a Buddhist convent. Izumi Shikibu's own date of death is unknown. Her last letter is from 1027, so clearly sometime after that. By the time of her death, she was a hugely celebrated poet. In particular, her diary of her affair with Prince Atsumichi contained a lot of highly regarded love poetry which was very well received. Like many other poetic diaries of the period, this was not really intended to be private writing. Even though it was written in that style, the intent was clearly for it to circulate, and when it did, it was well received. Some of Izumi Shikibu's poems made it into imperially sponsored poetry collections. By the medieval era, she was considered to be one of Japan's best female poets and one of the poetic immortals of Japan. A list of Japan's 36 best female poets, designed to pair with an older list of 36 male poets, put her very close to the top spot. So here is a woman who lived a profoundly scandalous life even by the standards of the time, and yet she became a celebrated figure both during her own life and afterwards. Her poems remain well regarded to this day, both in Japan and abroad. I actually discovered during the research for this episode that a few years back, two major European opera companies commissioned an Italian language opera based on her poems, describing her affair with Prince Atsumichi, entitled Dagello Agello, or From Frost to Frost. I've never seen it, but sounds cool. Next week, we'll take a look at two very different Heian period women. For now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. 
For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, or questions for the 300th episode, go to facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast, or our webpage, isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part two.